Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Perhaps one of the hottest things for debate in the American political scene today is the question of immigration. Who should come in? Who shouldn't? What services should we provide the immigrant before they become American citizens? Should they be forced to become American citizens? These are but some of the questions we ask as we debate the question of immigration. Well, my first guest this morning for conversation, Anna Lawton, takes the story of one immigrant and shows how she pursues the American dream. All this and more when we're coming up here on 94 WIP, the WIP time, 601. And we're back. And the question of immigration is topic for discussion today in the form of a novel as we welcome author Anna Lawton, her new book, Amy's Story, a novel. Good morning, Anna Lawton. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, what led you to write the book? Because as I understand it, you're an expert in cinema, and Soviet cinema in particular. How do you jump from cinema to Amy? Um, well, I uh, started writing uh, um, at an early age, but and, and then uh, it became my profession as a uh, university professor, um, I, um, I wrote scholarly books, uh, and uh, then uh, my um, uh, last book was about uh, Russian cinema, but I um, inserted some uh, fictional vignettes in, in it, and um, I thought it was uh, a very bold thing to do that would have been uh, met with uh, disapproval in the academic community. Uh, instead, it won a, um, an award, and um, it made me realize that I, uh, I can write fiction, and um, that, that was what I wanted to do. So. I wrote this um, novel, uh, uh, Amy's Story. All right, then, who is Amy? Uh, okay, well, the, the um, uh, novel is about many things. It's about love, history, uh, immigration, and the theme that you mentioned before, and, uh, and literature about the process of writing. And all this unfolds on the uh, background of America's history of the past 40 years. Um, but above all, uh, it is a uh, contemporary story. The novel takes a realistic look at our society today and um, attempts to make sense of the problems uh, we're facing. Now, Amy is the uh, protagonist, um, together with um, another woman, uh, a childhood friend. And um, the novel is um, a story within a story because... Um, um, Amy edits a uh, manuscript uh, written by her friend. So it's a little convoluted as a um, uh, structure, um, but um, it gives uh, the uh, narrative a, um, a dynamism, and uh, it stirs curiosity in the reader. What was there, though, about the last 40 years that you decided to make that the time period for the novel? Why not going further back, or why not into the future? Um, yes, well, I have been living in this country uh, for 40 years uh, as a citizen, and uh, I uh, noticed many changes uh, um, over this um, uh, time span. Uh, the events I refer uh, to in, in, in the novel um, had a tremendous impact on how American society evolved um, over that period of time. 
Um, for example, um, I uh, described the Vietnam War protests, uh, the uh, uprising of feminism and uh, hippie culture, uh, the Watergate scandal, up to the 9-11 uh, attack. And um, so I noticed uh, a transition from a society grounded in unshakable principles and, um, and therefore comfortable with a solid sense of identity to a society uh, shaken by doubts um, in search of uh, a new identity and gradually becoming affected by a good dose of cynicism. Uh, so in other words, uh, uh, it's turning more European, and uh, I would say regrettably so. <laughs> but aren't deaths a good thing to constantly question what you're doing as a society? Um, sorry, I can't hear you clearly. Aren't, okay. Aren't deaths good for a society to constantly question what you're doing and how you're doing it? Um, what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? Now, how society does it. Constantly question. Uh, well, um, nowadays uh, it's um, a society uh, um, that is uh, in a period of confrontation. We seem to be divided, uh, and uh, um, the, the confrontation, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, is um, about uh, immigration. Uh, this is one of the uh, uh, issues of the day. Um, and uh, this discussion has reached a level of frenzy where it's no longer possible to debate the issue in a rational way. Um, so I, uh, I think that my book is timely because um, um, I, I hope it can elevate the conversation beyond the, the headlines. What kind of life does Amy have when she comes to America? Um, now, uh, I get often the uh, the question: Is it this uh, an autobiographical novel? I'm not saying no, but uh, there are some uh, um, resemblance. There is some resemblance uh, to specific periods uh, in my life. Um, uh, when um, I came to uh, this country, uh, it was. Um, the result of a romance. So my uh, story is not uh, the typical um, immigrant story. Um, I, my, my family was quite well off, and uh, I grew up in a comfortable middle-class environment. Uh, um, so um, I um, came by uh, uh, choice and not by necessity. But um, I... Um, could sympathize with the difficulties other immigrants encounter. Um, although I was not in a disadvantaged condition, I wasn't, it wasn't easy at the beginning. For me, the worst challenge was uh, a sense of uh, displacement. Uh, um, my English was adequate, but far from perfect. And um, so I cannot say that I ever encountered discrimination, but I was certainly perceived as um, a foreigner. Um, so I felt I didn't belong, and that was nobody's fault, of course. It was a fact. Um, and so I did my best to assimilate, and in the end I uh, succeeded, and now I feel um, as comfortable here as I do in Italy. 
Um, you know, I go back uh, often, uh, at least uh, twice a year, and uh, Italy has um, remained my childhood home. Um, but America is my home as an adult, where uh, I can live my life and uh, strive to uh, realize my full potential. And this is something I uh, greatly appreciate. So in a sense, uh, um, uh, there are similarities with Amy's story because uh, she also uh, comes to the state from Italy. Um, her father is an American. He um, is the, the, the owner of a publishing house in New York, and um, eventually uh, she uh, um, gets to work in the family business. <laughs> But would Amy's life have been different if she had been from the Middle East or from Africa? I guess so, yes, definitely. I, um, I said that uh, um, this is not the typical immigrant story, but uh, in the book uh, there are different kinds of um, uh, experiences. There's also the story of a uh, very poor Italian family uh, that uh, came to the States at the beginning of the past century, beginning of the 20th century, um, with the uh, big waves of uh, immigration. And um, they uh, uh, had to go through the uh, usual routine, um, you know, uh, a rigorous uh, uh, vetting system on Ellis Island, and then uh, um, the struggle, the struggle to uh, uh, survive and uh, to um, uh, uh, make it uh, into uh, the middle class. Um, there is also an, a, a third story of immigration, which is of a uh, uh, Russian intellectual from the Soviet Union. Um, so uh, it covers uh, different um, moments in history and uh, different situations. But Amy had some advantages on her side, as you said. She had the father who was American, her skin was white, and she came from a culture that people liked, if for no other reason, than the cooking. <laughs> Excuse me again. Um, I cannot hear you okay. clearly. Amy um, had some advantages going on her side, though. Um, oh, definitely, definitely. Um, and she is um, a privileged person, yes. What then are you trying to tell us about immigration as a piece of the story? What do I want to tell about immigration? Yes. Well, um, I think there are uh, many uh, reasons why uh, people want to immigrate to the United States. Um, but uh, uh, those uh, who come um, definitely want to. Um, some uh, come uh, to the United States because um, they already have uh, a, uh, a plan here. Uh, um, they come with a job. They uh, um, have a degree. Uh, others uh, come because... Um, um, to, to escape poverty or uh, to escape uh, a uh, um, war situation. So uh, in, when, I, when they arrive in this country, 
the um, experience, the reality they face uh, is uh, very difficult. Um, as I said, my experience was uh, not uh, um, uh, the typical one because uh, I was not disadvantaged, but uh, I can sympathize with uh, those that come and uh, have to start from, uh, from zero. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Anna Lawton, academic author. She's written a novel, Amy's Story. It's a novel about immigration. It's a novel about love. It's a novel about assimilation. It's a novel about a whole lot of things. And Anna Lawton, you stay with us. I've got to run a couple commercials. We'll be right back in just a bit. The WIP Times 616. And we're back. It's conversation. My guest for conversation this morning is author Anna Lawton. Her new book, Amy's Story. It's a novel, and it talks about a whole lot of stuff. My name's Peter Solomon. Does Amy at least get a happy ending? Oh, the ending is a secret. Actually, it is an open ending. Um, and um, uh, the book is in uh, three parts. So uh, the third part, uh, um, uh, in, there's a twist in the story, and uh, I cannot, uh, I cannot talk about it. That's okay. Um, what do you want us to get, though? What do you want us to know when we finish reading Amy's story? I uh, would hope that first of all, um, the um, the story will. Um, uh, have uh, an impact on the uh, uh, reader's imagination um, and, uh, and carry a message, but not a clear, uh, well-defined message, something that the uh, um, reader would uh, um, um, construct by herself um, from uh, the... Um, the characters, their interaction, uh, the uh, intersection of the plot lines, all this should create a, uh, um, um, a situation in the reader's mind where uh, um, an, idea, um, an idea emerges. Um, because uh, this is the uh, function of literature not to give you a ready-made answer to these questions, but to raise new questions and to give you the tools to answer by yourself. Which is easier, Anna Lawton, fiction or nonfiction? Because you've written both. I, uh, um, well, it's, it's a... Um, craft, uh, you know, so you have to learn it. And uh, um, I enjoy now uh, uh, writing fiction um, much more than uh, writing scholarly books. I think I'm done with that. Um, fiction gives you the, um, um, the freedom uh, to uh, um, to go with your imagination, uh, um, with your free flow of ideas, um, and um, scholarly books and scholarly mode of writing is more scientific. So um, you have to do a rigorous research, and um, and there are some strict rules. 
um, I think that uh, fiction is more creative, and uh, that's uh, where I am at this moment. And I'd like to say thank you to Anna Lawton, her new novel, Amy's Story. It's a good novel to pack if you're going on an early vacation or just sitting at home enjoying the evening air. Thank you, Anna Lawton. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure, and it's been conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation in just a bit. And we're back. It's conversation. And before we move on to the next conversation, I want to take note of a birthday and a date in history. Both of those dates today. Happy birthday to Hugh Hefner. He changed how America thought about sex and sexuality and... Not necessarily for the good. I'm not sure about that. But it raised some important questions. 91 years old today. Happy birthday, Mr. Hefner. And also, today's the day that Robert E. Lee surrendered the South to General Grant in Appomattox. The Civil War was over. But the issues behind the war continue until today. And coming up now for conversation, Julie Lellis. Julie is one of the authors of a new book, an important book about business and maybe even for families, I'm not sure. That book, The Zombie Business Cure, How to Refocus Your Company's Identity for More Authentic Communication. Good morning, Julie Lillis. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm My pleasure. Zombies, I mean, they're all the rage right now with The Walking Dead. <laughs> what made you choose that for your title of the book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our book is really about identity. And so we, my co-author and I, as we were sort of playing around with ideas, we were talking a lot about um, people and businesses being fully embodied and being who they are. And the logical, um, you know, metaphor for that would be zombies who are very haphazard and reckless and very stiff, and they kind of all look and sound and act the same. And so um, we encourage readers to do it differently with their businesses. All right. I can see how people have an identity. Yes. Religions have an identity. Families have an identity. But how do businesses have an identity? So businesses tend to operate from a set of core values. And the hope is is that it's something that people in the business have sat around and talked about. And there are some really good examples of that. Um, Zappos is a great example. They have a list of 10 core values that they live by um, related to their online shoe business. And um, Johnson & Johnson, another good example that we write about in the book that has a really strong core set of ideas that they sort of operate from. And so that's really what we see is the foundation and core of the business. And if you can base your behavior on that, and then you look more authentic to people, you have stronger relationships, and you're not confusing customers um, by saying you're one way and acting differently. Um, so there are a lot of benefits to really connecting with that sense of humanity um, and looking at yourself as kind of a, a whole person and looking at your organization that way as well. But shouldn't the business's core identity be to make money? <laughs> yes, of course. When we talk about that as well um, in the book, and of course there is a bottom line that you have to pay attention to. Um, but what happens is that some businesses, when they go astray and can't 
be authentic to who they are, they end up messing that up anyway. And so our idea is that if you can sort of have in your mind a set of, of human types of traits, that it will end up benefiting the bottom, bottom line because you will attract other people, right? So zombies kind of repel people, and we sort of talk to our readers about how to attract people by being more original, um, being more flexible in their communication. And so there are a lot of different things that we write about in the book that would, that would make businesses look more attractive. And then the hope is that it affects the bottom line. We also do address um, nonprofit organizations. So we definitely reach out to other types of organizations in the book. Hmm. I'm going to take, go down that road then because that interests me, nonprofit organizations. Sure. How do, how do they develop an identity? Well, it can be hard in the sense that in some of the research that I've done, when I look at marketing and PR materials and their online websites and things like that, a lot of nonprofit organizations look and sound the same. You know, they're really designed to help people or to make change or to do something better. Um, so one thing they can do is sort of sit around and think about how they are differentiated from other similar organizations. You know, what uh, type of – what added value do they have to give to the marketplace um, that other organizations don't have? And – then is there a little bit of a personality that can come out? So if they're, say, more of a playful organization, can they use that to, do, to their advantage to attract um, people who like that identity? Um, so it really comes down to working with leadership and thinking about what would make um, the company or, or organization different from others. We definitely... Um, have some good examples in the book. We talk about the ice bucket challenge. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I remember. That happened. Yeah, online. And that was just something fun and different that really set that organization apart um, from other similar organizations, and it raised a lot of money. They raised a wheelbarrow full of money. Yeah. But was that the organization's idea or somebody on the outside, you know? Well, that's what's, in, that's what's interesting is that, yes, it did sort of uh, stem from someone outside of the organization. It was younger people, and they were having a good time, and there was one person who happened to be connected to this cause, and they sort of linked it up. But it was really up to the organization to take the idea on, right? So we definitely, in the book, and this is very common today, even for even for for-profit businesses, you have to scan your environment because there's so much going on online and among people having conversations and doing things. And if you can spot something and pay attention to it and turn it into something more positive, that can be really beneficial to your business. Um, so we definitely talk about, in the book, connecting to those customers. And, and it was really the organization had to make a decision in that moment that they were going to get behind this trend of dumping water on people's heads, you know. So I think that there are opportunities that you have to really be aware of and look for. And if you think about what a human would do, a good human would sort of look around and survey what their environment is and pay attention to the smaller details and, um, zombies would not do that, obviously. They would just plow through life and look for food, and they would be very self-serving in what they do. Well, I also think one of the reasons is, um, um, the Ice Bucket Challenge succeeded was their ability to attract celebrities to be interested. Absolutely, yes. 
So if you can get someone of higher um, status along with your organization, and also if you can partner. We talk a lot about partnership in the book and that humans develop partnerships in life, right, and it benefits them. And so we write a lot about how businesses can do good by partnering with one another, whether it be a competitor or a nonprofit. One of the funny examples that we talk about in the book is Burger King and McDonald's. And Burger King on International Peace Day, they reached out to McDonald's or they took out an ad in the New York Times or um, another um, publication, and they asked McDonald's to partner with them and create the McWhopper as a sign of peace, right? And so what happened is McDonald's didn't handle it very well. Um, They didn't have as much fun with it as Burger King wanted them to. But it really ended up benefiting Burger King because their customers thought it was great and they were excited and, um, and people just thought it was a really interesting concept. So there are definitely ways you can work with other organizations to sort of highlight and embellish and, and make uh, yourself look more interesting um, than you have in the past. What led you and your um, partner, Melissa Eggleston, to write the book? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were neighbors and friends, and we were sitting around talking about similar ideas. Um, I'm a professor in strategic communications. She's a consultant in user experience and content strategy. And so we have a lot of similar ideas and experiences. And we both, I do a little consulting work. She obviously does a lot more. That's what she does full time. And so we were sitting around talking about ideas and organizations. And then we sort of just ended up thinking, like, what projects could we do together? And I had always wanted to write a book about identity. It was what I had done my research on and in my doctoral work, and it was something I was using a lot in the classroom to help students understand organizations, and so she was really great at helping that um, bring that to life with me, and so we ended up coming up with something we felt really good about. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Julie Lellis, her new book, The Zombie Business Cure how to refocus your company's identity for more authentic communication. Now, Julie, speaking of communication, we got to communicate a few commercials here. So we'll be right back in just a bit. You stay with us. The WIP time, 637. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Julie Lellis, expert in communication, academic author, The Zombie Business Cure, How to Refocus Your Company's Identity for More Authentic Communications. Julie, question. Authentic seems like an overused word sometimes. Mm-hmm. Help me understand. Absolutely. Help me understand what you mean by authentic. You know, we're talking about authentic communication here. What makes authentic authentic? Yes. Well, what makes authentic authentic? Um, well, we sort of break some of that down in the book. We talk a little bit about uh, there's a metaphor about um, grace which is to be more graceful in what you're doing. And I have to uh, sort of look through and find the actual um, breakdown of that um, that acronym. But it's, it's really about understanding who you are and then sort of living by it. So if you say you're one way, sort of sticking to that message, 
um, and being that in all that you do. And so I think it's hard. People get off track with with who they say they want to be and whether that behavior matches that. So we see that in our regular lives with our friends and family. Um, and here's the acronym for you. So we talk about authenticity as being very graceful. So grace is being genuine, so making sure that your core values sort of shine through. Um, R is for responsible. So knowing that you're accountable to who you communicate with and establishing and reinforcing trust. Um, A is accommodating, C is credible, and E is exciting. So having this, this dynamic personality, I think, ends up being more authentic. Now, some businesses are not as interesting as others, right? So if you look at insurance, for example. But what the insurance companies, Geico, um, Allstate with Mr. Mayhem, what they've done to sort of make themselves uh, seem authentic and have ideas that are sort of above and beyond selling you something that's going to help you when you get in a car accident is they've created personalities that sort of extend um, the core values of their businesses. So that's a good example of how a not-so-interesting business could sort of turn into something more interesting. Uh, true with Mr. Mayhem and the Geico Lizard. Yes. Both of them amusing characters, if nothing else. But Yeah, for- absolutely. And Mr. Mayhem even has his own Twitter feed where he <laughs> gives ideas about um, certain things that are going on in the world that might create more mayhem, um, which we think is really interesting. All right. But for businesses, both profit and nonprofit, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to chase the latest trend the latest funding opportunity, the latest in-thing. Is that one of the ways businesses get lost? Well, yes, absolutely. One of the things that my co-author and I had sort of talked about a lot is that we often, when we work with people, everyone says, well, we need to have a Facebook page and we need to have a Twitter account. We need this because this is what everyone is doing. And really what we sit down and say with them is that where are your customers? Because if they are not in these spaces or using these platforms, then you're sort of throwing time and energy into something more interesting to you or maybe exciting, but it's not really authentic, right? Because it it can't really connect you with the people that you need to stay connected with. And so, yes, I think it's absolutely how people get off track. And we see that in, there's a lot of different examples um, throughout the book. We also see a lot of businesses that don't really do thorough research before they make changes. So the GAF logo is an example that we have in the book. I don't know if you remember several years ago when GAP decided to change its logo. And its customers actually really liked the original logo. And so when GAP made that decision, it wasn't really thinking clearly. And they quickly had to revert back to their old logo because of the backlash that they got online. Um, you know, from customers, but also from advertising executives and other people that sort of felt like the change wasn't as creative or interesting as it could have been. I'm also, just as you were talking, thinking of the various soda companies, you know, New Coke and Coke. Yes. Another example. Some of those ideas are short-lived, right? And so they may be sort of one-off things to sort of gather attention or get people more interested. But 
as you notice, Coca-Cola always goes back to sort of its original foundation, right? And that's what attracts people. That's what retains people. Um, that is what interests them. Now, they've done some really interesting things with the, the name campaign. I don't know if you noticed when they've put names on their um, bottles and they had like a custom naming system, um, and they really did well with that and sort of getting people engaged and having their own personal relationship with Coca-Cola. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Sometimes products are introduced, and as long as they don't, sort of go against what the core values of the company are or make the company look totally different than what it is, it doesn't necessarily spell disaster, right? They can always re revert back to that core connection of what they've been known for, right? And then there was that controversy, still brewing a little bit today. Um, the, I think it was Pepsi with Kylie Jenner's commercial. Yes, I did see that um, and, and was definitely paying attention to that. And that was an example of, we talk about this concept of being sort of environmentally aware, right? So being aware of your environment, not in the sense of saving the planet and saving trees, but being aware of your environment in the sense of what is happening among you or around you socially, politically, economically, that you need to kind of be sensitive to when you're creating creative work. Um, definitely companies push the envelope on certain ideas. But in this case, it backfired, um, and it didn't really work well for the company. Now, what I like about what Pepsi did is they corrected it, and they sort of apologized for it, and... Um, and we talk, we also teach companies in the book sort of how to apologize. So it sounds really simple, but humans tend to have better relationships when they can apologize for wrongdoings and things that didn't go over very well. Um, and so that's a, that's a great trait to have if you're a more human business rather than a zombie. A zombie would have not paid attention to what customers and others were thinking about the commercial and that was a commercial, I think, that not only didn't pay attention to the environment in terms of what people were thinking, but I also think they forgot a large piece of their core consumers, which were minorities. Yes, absolutely. And why would you alienate an important uh, market for you, right? And that is where research comes into play. That is where testing your messages. So perhaps there should have been a little bit more message testing in that situation, so running the commercial by different types of people that would fit into the target audience and paying attention to what they think and feel. And, and imagine if, they, if that information had come to them much earlier in the process and they could have corrected it before it went out and into the public. That's true. And I think part of what you're talking about, too, if I may, is shown in people's reaction to those advertisers in Breitbart on Breitbart website and Breitbart publications. Mm -hmm. um, people are upset with the right-wing view of Breitbart, and they're leaning on the advertisers to pull out. And it's yeah. working. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wrote an article two years ago about whether companies and organizations should get involved with social and political issues. And there's a lot of nuances to that, right? So whether they should... Um, pull out their advertising when they're, it's, I mean, if you're getting pressure from the customers that care about you, you know, why wouldn't you honor your relationships with your customers? Um, 
if it is authentic to who you are and, and the, the organization that you want to be, then why wouldn't you honor that? And I don't think there's anything wrong with a business sort of taking a stand. Now, larger businesses tend to fare better when they sort of make a, a, a statement like that because they're they will have a, a base that will, will stay with them and um, will stay loyal to them and might have the same core values. Um, it just has to be thought through. But, yeah, I think if your customers are asking you, it's something to consider, right? Absolutely. So who does it right? You mentioned a couple of businesses earlier, but I want to go back to that. Who does it right? Who, who does it right? Well, we definitely look at Johnson & Johnson in the book. Um, they have this sort of uh, iconic case study of when their Tylenol capsules were laced with cyanide and people died from it. Um, they tend to stick to those core values. They reiterated them. They did not suffer as much as they could have from that um, scandal. It wasn't even their fault that their Tylenol was defective. Um, it had been tampered with. And so they went on to create and help sponsor tamper-resistant packaging. But they also have done some great things over the years. And we also talk about Kind Bar. Um, and Kind was so wonderful, actually, to donate some of their bars to us when we had our book launch party and things like that. And they do some really neat things and stay very authentic to who they are. Also, we I got to do a great case study on 1-800-GOT-JUNK, so the junk removal company that comes in and sort of helps you um, get rid of all the things. And we also have smaller businesses. So we have we feature a smaller business, Reverend Nat's Hard Cider. It's a hard cider company out of um, Portland, Oregon. And their owner sat down with us and gave us a great interview and really detailed how he started his business and how he communicates with his customers. And obviously it's in a very authentic way. He's Reverend Nat because he's very evangelical about um, creating um, cider flavors that nobody else has ever created. We feature the Boston Police Department, great example of how they communicated during the marathon bombing. Um, so there's a, a large variety. Charles Schwab is one of our biggest companies that we um, sort of feature in the book. And then we also have a few little sole proprietors and more mom-and-pop shop examples that you might not see on the news or, or hear about in large publications, but they're in our book because they have interesting stories. And what's the greatest example of someone who's done it wrong? Someone who's done it wrong. Well, we have a lot of little examples. We didn't feel like McDonald's handled things well at all during their um, opportunity with Burger King. Um, we also were, were critical of Lululemon. Um, they had made some mistakes when their yoga pants were not, uh, you know, their $100 yoga pants and the fabric is too thin and the CEO made some not so helpful statements about well, maybe it's the size of women's thighs that were too big and that's why the pants were sheer. So there are examples like that. We also equally criticized Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. They both had zombie errors when they were sort of walking through their campaigns, although Donald Trump tends to communicate in some zombie ways and still has a base that follows him. So that's a really interesting and curious um, opportunity to look at. But we definitely tried to sort of, of uh, criticize or sort of look at political parties in general tend to make 
more zombie-like mistakes, and and people are are feeling more disconnected from from the parties, as we've seen. So there's a there's a lot of different examples um, in here that I think people will find really interesting, and we definitely try to back up negative examples with evidence. So we don't want to pick on any company that that doesn't have there's not some sort of evidence behind the mistakes that they've made. Absolutely right about those political parties in particular. Yes, yes, very interesting. Whatever happened to the party of Roosevelt and Lincoln, who knows? (laughs) I know. I'd like to say thank you to Julie Lellis, author and one of the authors of the new book, The Zombie Business Cure, How to Refocus Your Company's Identity for More Authentic Communication. Thank you, Julie. Before we go, do you have a website? Thank you so much. Do you have a website? Yes, www.zombiebusinesscure.com www.zombiebusinesscure.com. Thank you, Julie Lellis. Thank you. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Ann Tideman Solomon, dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Finally, nothing left to say, but see you soon.